This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us on April 20th. We'll have our friends from Nelson Labs lead a discussion about the impact of MDR on biocompatibility. And then on April 27th, we'll be talking with folks from Sertronics and Sunrise about how to make outsourcing work for you. Go to devicetalks.com for more details on both these sessions. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, or welcome if this is your first time listening to the show. We've got a great episode coming up for you. Well, first, we're going to talk with Kwame Ulmer of Ulmer Ventures. Kwame Ulmer is a former FDA official who's now an investor in digital health and med tech companies. He's also a professor at UCLA, and he's going to be one of the leaders of a new study to analyze how the industry is interacting with the FDA. This is a follow-up to a landmark study done by uh, Josh Macauer, who is uh, with NEA and soon to be with Stanford. And that study by Josh Macauer indicated about a decade or so ago, or completed about a decade or so ago, really kind of pointed out the fact that the FDA and the medtech industry were not working as closely as they could, and that the regulatory process could be smoothed out to foster innovation. And it really helped get a discussion going about how the FDA and industry can work better together. And uh, as a result, partly to that study, there is a better relationship between the FDA and MedTech. So this study led by UCLA, and Kwame will talk about it in this uh, upcoming interview, will look at that relationship. His hope is to talk to MedTech executives about their regulatory successes and their regulatory difficulties and really draw a, uh, a comprehensive look at how the FDA and MedTech are working together. So I'll let Kwame tell the story in greater detail. Then after that, I had a really great conversation with Derek Herrera. Derek is a Marine. He was injured in Afghanistan and he turned that injury into a MedTech career. He has now founded two companies that are developing devices that can help people with disabilities, people who have trouble just monitoring their own wounds. They're, they're super helpful and important devices, the kind of devices that can really make a person's day much better and really, really improve their health. So uh, Derek's story is terrific. I had a, a long conversation with him. It was one of those talks that I didn't anticipate for it to go as long as it did, but uh, the more I talked, the more I wanted to learn. So I know you'll enjoy hearing from Derek Herrera. But before we begin those interviews, it's time to talk to my podcasting partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. You are uh, you are halfway there, correct? Vaccine wise. Yep. Got the first Pfizer shot. You don't know. It's a little bit of a sore arm, so lucked out on that. We'll see how the next one goes in a few weeks. Pretty great. That sounds great. Hey man, you, you're getting vaccinated soon too, right? That That's right. I, I was standing outside Governor Baker's uh, house with my boom box and my trench coat, as you suggested. Yeah. Great suggestion, Chris Newmarker. And, Glad it uh, worked. Woo, did it. Op- open things up. You took it to the man with that boom box? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I went into the matrix and I changed the code and I'm getting my J&J shot on, uh, on Sunday. So uh, Nice. Single shot too. Single shot. That's great. In and out, baby. In and out. You know, 
I, I'd say, you know, these variants right now are, are scary, but, you know, it, this this roll vaccine rollout, at least, you know, it just it is kind of feeling like it's just getting a little better every day. Every day just feels a little better. Maybe it's the spring weather, too. But, you know, I, I just there's hope. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous emotion. <laughs> but a, I feel I feel hope. It's a, it's a foreign feeling for sure. But yes, I, I do as well. I already did math. If I get my shot, I'll give myself a month for immunity. I'll be able to maybe see a, a baseball game safely yeah, in, in may or june so that would be a, a a welcome activity well let's roll into this week's new markers newsmakers another great list chris Newmarkers has been a busy busy week yeah what is uh what is number five really busy news week well number five on the list we've got uh varian um announcing it's going to be working with google cloud to uh build a uh AI-based diagnostic platform around uh, radiation oncology. And, you know, it sounds like what they're going to really focus on first is uh, is organ se- segmentation. And this is like this really crucial labor-intensive step, you know, in the process in which uh, the radiologist is identifying the organs and tissues and the images that, you know, need to be either, you know, targeted or, or protected during the radiation therapy. It takes hours to get it done per patient. And it's just like this big bottleneck in the clinical process. So Varian is going to be working with Google to uh, come up with some uh, AI to kind of speed this up, get around it. So, so here's to hoping they, uh, you know, come up with some really cool, cool innovations that, uh, you know, make, uh, make it easier for people to, uh, you know, quickly get, you know, radiation therapy and beat their cancer. All right, Chris. Well, that was written by a, a young reporter, Chris Newmarker. Great job there, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm getting better all the time. <laughs> Keep at it. You'll, you'll, you'll get there someday. I'll make it somewhere someday. <laughs> what is number four on the Newmarker's Newsmakers? Well, number four on the list, just just another story by our great associate editor Sean Hooley, um, and he was writing about uh, you know Boston Scientific. They're uh, you know touting uh, you know results from a, uh, a from a new twelve uh, month uh, trial into its uh, next generation Watchman left atrial appendage closure device, and uh, you know the results of this uh, you know trial uh, you know found the the Watchman FLX uh, meeting its uh, you know safety and efficacy uh, endpoints. So this is this is great news um that you know that there should you know some some good data to back up this uh, next uh, generation stroke prevention device that uh boston scientific's looking to to you know get to, to roll out starting to we're i'm hoping that we'll get some some boston scientific folks on the podcast in the uh coming months so uh stay tuned and uh subscribe Kwame ulmer welcome to the podcast it's great to be with you tom thanks for having me my pleasure. So we're talking about a very cool effort that uh, you're undertaking and working with uh, UCLA. And we'll get into the details of that, but it has a bit to do with your background as well. I've always been intrigued by the fact that you started your medtech career in the FDA. How did that come to be? And why would you leave a job with such good benefits to, to do what you're doing now? <laughs> that, that is not the first I got that question because most people, if they leave the FDA, they leave after a couple years to just be able to say that they worked at the FDA and get a great job at a company, or they stay for 25 years. And as a capstone, they do some high level strategy consulting. I I left in the middle. And the the reason I left is I was fortunate to work with some great people. But after about 12 years, I had reviewed hundreds of applications at different levels. And it was just professionally time for me to 
be a part of an organization that was actually building the devices that I've been evaluating for years. But during my time at the FDA, the MacHour study came out and it shook the earth at the FDA to the extent that here was this outside research that challenged us to think if we were being a burden. And we had a new center director come in who really made some changes and shifted our thinking to try and facilitate more innovation in the U.S. And that MacHour study is what prompted this current research that I'm engaged in with UCLA. Excellent. Now, I want to drill into that, but I would love to understand just while you're at the FDA and that study came out, not only the study, but your whole interaction with industry, how did you and your colleagues view your relationship with the med tech industry? Because I was at the time talking to entrepreneurs and executives, yeah. and I don't want to say it was adversarial, but there was certainly some, I wish they would just let me do my job kind of sentiments. Yeah, I'll speak personally, and then I'll give you my assessment of how your typical FDA reviewer thought of industry. So personally, I always knew there was a safety and promotion of public health. There was this dual mandate. And your average reviewer knows that as well. Having said that, because we have no conf- reviewers have no conflicts, no large stakes in any big medical device companies, the bias was towards safety. And I, I still think to an extent it is. And that can generate a bit of a overly protective, overly cautious evaluation of technology. And quite candidly, MacCower, along with some other changes in the organization, one of them was an innovation pathway program that was started when I was there. I was fortunate enough to work with Megan Moynihan. And it was this DARPA-like skunk works, closed off organization that just thought about how we could review differently, faster, facilitate more breakthrough products. And that was the impetus for the breakthrough program that we see today. So that was what was going on back in the 2000s when I was at the FDA. So you left in in 2014 and now you're with Ulmer Ventures and a few other entities, including MedTech Color. I wanted to understand if you could walk us through, because some people listening to this podcast may be newer to the industry, they may not really understand what the MacAR report was. So talk a little bit about it was, and then let's roll into into what you folks want to do at UCLA. Yeah, it was a study of and survey of large and emerging companies. I believe over 100 companies responded to the survey, and it was partially perceptions with some questions about how quantifying, to some extent, how long the process took. And really, the essential questions boil down to, is the FDA a burden to you getting to the market? Do they help you get to the market? What are the main stumbling points? What do you think about when did your lead reviewer change? If so, what impact did it have on it? Those types of questions were in the MacHour study. And it forced the organization to think about, one, were companies launching in Europe first? If so, why? And what could be done differently in the U.S. so that they launched in the U.S. first? And that was 10 years ago. And myself, Jennifer McCanny, who runs the UCLA Biodesign Program, and, and Christian Johnson, who came from Edwards, from marketing space, we thought, wow, isn't this a good time to take a fresh look at those questions, quantify it more and ask some new questions. Because mm-hmm. 10 years ago, digital health wasn't a thing 10 mm-hmm. years ago. That's, right. That's just one example. 
And, and I think it's great because the med tech industry, to me at least, feels much more different than it did 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was more insular. I'm sure Josh talked to a lot of people he knew, and I'm sure a, most of them, I would I'd gather, were in Minnesota on the West Coast or maybe here in Boston. This is a, you're in UCLA now. Biomed programs are, are really expanding. So how do you, do you see this as being a, a larger study than the first? And how do you want this to, what do you want this to represent as an industry? Do you want to look nationwide and really try to get a national temperature? We want to get a national temperature. We want to, and we want to cover perceptions. We also want to have rigor such that we look at hard timelines to validate, verify, and confirm the data that the FDA puts out. And we also want to ask about new issues that weren't around 10 years ago, like digital health like uh, reimbursement through the breakthrough designation program and how are they impacting how companies are bringing their products to market. And, and just as you mentioned, there's always been hubs in Boston and Irvine, but there are new hubs emerging. You know, I'm fortunate enough to teach a class with Jennifer on MedTech Innovation. And as a venture partner, we have invested in many digital health companies based in LA, based in places that aren't Northern California, that aren't Irvine. So there's several opportunities to do some things new mm. uh, and bigger. What does this survey look like? How will you be reaching out to people? What will you be talking to them about? And after that, I'll ask you what people listening to this podcast can do to help. Yeah. So we have a website where we it facilitates this survey and it can be conducted in one of two ways. An executive at your company can sit down for 30 minutes with the right regulatory material available, we can walk through the study so you don't have to click anything. <laughs> we'll do all the clicking <laughs> for you. <laughs> or you can go through a study that's been designed to be no more than about 20 minutes. If you have any questions, there's, you know, you can talk to us to help you walk through it. Uh, and we want to get over 200 participants. We launched it a couple of weeks ago. Chris, we partnered with experts in survey design. It's a formal IRB exempt study led by UCLA. So it has the rigor and the imprimatur of the world, the nation's number one public university. So we're excited about the rigor and the depth and the, the breadth of it. And we partnered with an MDMA to really try and extend our reach as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be sending out a link to a thousand people through an email on some survey monkey kind of thing. This is an intensive one-on-one -on -one personal sort of survey. Either you'll be there asking the questions directly or you'll be on hand to guide someone through it. If you want, we will send you a link so you can do it at the, we were joking, you can do it in the comfort of your home <laughs> with, or we'll sit and walk you through it. We're really trying to be the biggest survey of the medtech industry in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we'll meet you however you want to conduct the survey. And someone listening to this, why would they want to participate? What will be the, the benefit to maybe, if not them individually, to, to the sector as a whole? You'll, this report, which we will share broadly, you'll be able to be a part of seminal or breakthrough research that will answer key questions about the industry's perception of the role of reimbursement in 2021 and how it impacts not just your company, but the industry in, in general, you know, you'll have access to things like heat maps to show you not just where companies are based, but funding levels and the intersection of 
speed to market through the regulatory process and funding so that you can get a really neat view of the intersection of where you are versus the regulatory pathway versus the investment dollars that went into companies that are similarly situated. So you're not looking just to get a, a sense of what the regulatory pathway is, good or bad, fast or slow. You really want to build the regulatory into the entire ecosystem and to see how they intersect and how they work together and where they work best and where maybe they could work better. Yeah. And I couldn't think of a better team to do this. Christian Johnson came from Edwards and Jennifer McCanny is a co-director of the Center for Biodesign. So she brings that academic lens, but she's worked with countless startups. She teaches medtech innovation. I was fortunate enough to work at the FDA. I help people navigate the FDA and I'm a venture partner in an early stage venture capital firm. So we have these different lenses that we look at it and coming together is Voltron. It's just amazing. We'll be able to look at it from all these different angles. I love so we're the excited Voltron, about it. Voltron reference. Excellent. <laughs> That's my first Voltron reference on the podcast. That's outstanding. More of a, I was more of a Shogun warrior guy, but Voltron's cool too. That's cool. So have you talked to Josh Mackauer about this uh, and, and will he be involved with that at all? We, the Royal we has, Jennifer has been, <laughs> Jennifer has engaged with Josh on a couple occasions. He's given us great advice and insight on things that we should consider when we're designing the study. So yeah. we count him as a, a valued advisor in this effort. That's great. And final question, if someone is listening to this and they want to be involved, what can they do? Go to www.medtechstudy.com. That's a good URL. All right. Kwame, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. Chris, bring us to number three on the New Markers Newsmakers. Number three on the list is a uh, is kind of a, a disturbing um, piece of research from the uh, from the University of Missouri, and you know what they found out was that there's um, some uh, you know there's some real disparities between um, you know black black and white people in the U.S. when it comes to uh, getting access to uh, left ventricular assist devices if you've got advanced heart failure. I mean, they're finding that uh, you know black patients in general are, are getting them later than uh than uh than white people and probably the best um best explanation they had was just that uh you know more um you know more black people in the u.s are relying on uh public health insurance uh well you mm -hmm. know than, than than white people um but i mean it's just, just still like inexcusable no absolutely it's another great story by by sean hooley and it's important that we do these specific studies because i know we've spoken generally about healthcare inequities and we've had bust scientific uh on here talking about their close the gap program to uh to really shrink the gap between uh between the races in terms of, of healthcare. Uh but it's 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 helpful. I was gonna say good, but it's not good. It's helpful, yeah, helpful. to have specific specific accounts, uh something to look at, an algorithm that needs to be changed, some sort of decision making process that needs to be altered. And there has been a, a, a from my understanding from Sean's article that CMS is now reimbursing these uh, on a broader scale. Yeah. So ho hopefully the payment will uh will lead to a shrinkage of that uh, disparity as well so right cms has made some moves so i mean hopefully this uh this uh this this treatment gap will uh will close uh, because you know i mean lvads can just be this um you know you know tremendous uh you know type of bridge therapy for people who are 
you know, waiting to try to get some kind of permanent heart transplant. And they're, you know, these days, you know, also just becoming a way to, for, you know, people with advanced heart failure just to stay alive. Oh, it's, it's, it's great that the, the money's coming through. It's great that the industry is looking at this. And I think it's important for everyone, including you and me, Chris, to, to report on these things Absolutely. as Sean did and to talk, to talk about it on the podcast. Uh, I covered this industry for a long time. And frankly, this n- issue never came up to my attention. And maybe I should have seen it. Maybe I should have looked for it. But uh, going forward, we'll definitely be talking about it. So kudos to, uh, to Sean Hooley and Metalizan and Outsourcing for, uh, for running that article and for the, yes. was it, which university was it? This was the University of Missouri. So yeah, it's a really good study for the, that, they, uh, that they did. And, and yes, if you want to read the uh, full article, it's, uh, the, the article is in its entirety is on uh, medical design and outsourcing. Well, let's go to, uh, to number two. We've got a familiar name there, number two. Yeah, you know, number two is a shocker. Hologic is buying a company. Wow. <laughs> Gee, we haven't seen that in a while, right? Uh, not I mean, not I mean, a couple of days, at least. At I know. least a couple of days, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, Hologic has been on an, a merger, an M&A tear uh, this year. You know, they really made a good pivot during the, the pandemic uh, toward you know, their diagnostics business and um, they've, they've just been buying away. And now we got you know, like the fourth big deal so far in this calendar year. And it involves uh, Hologic uh, acquiring, uh, oh my gosh, let me see if I can pronounce a Finnish French company, uh, Moby, Moby Diag Oi. Um, for, sounds good to me, Chris. Sounds good. All right, let's see if I now did it. It's spelled M O B I D I A G G O Y. O Y. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm Two not. Two words. I'm not an expert in Finnish, but um, hopefully I did that right. And it was for uh, 795 million dollars. And this uh, company develops and markets uh, PCR tests uh, for acute care conditions. Um, so just you know, adding on some uh, some more uh, you know technologies into you know into the uh, the satchel of what Hologic is, is able to do in the diagnostic space. So, so yeah, just, just another big deal for Hologic. I've spent well over a billion dollars, like a billion and a half dollars just over the last couple of months on acquisitions. So uh, they're, they're really uh, doubling down on yeah. diagnostics. So good. So good for them. Big and time for also, Hologic. Also going back to the disparity conversation there. If anyone wants to check out the interview we did with Steve McMillan a couple of episodes ago, he talked about the, uh, the work they're doing with Gallup on a survey of uh, women's healthcare globally. So uh, that'll be an interesting discussion once we uh, get the results of that survey that they'll do year after year. So we'll have more data and more data is good. That'll be really good information. I mean, it just it just sounds like we're getting more information and just, you know, more of a drive to, to make sure that, I mean, everyone, I mean, it just makes sense morally. Everyone should have some basic level of healthcare around the world. Amen, Chris Newmarker. All right. Bring us home to number one on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list. Well, number one. Wow. This is like something we've never written about either, right? A special purpose (laughs) acquisition company, a SPAC. Yeah, we got another big SPAC deal coming down. Um, You know, these, uh, for for those who don't know this financial mechanism, I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, you got uh, notable people. Uh, get take a company public that is for the sole purpose of finding an other company that they are going to then acquire and 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 take public by virtue of the fact that they are already public. And in this case, we've got a uh, a SPAC called CA Healthcare Acquisition Corp. You know their uh, you know chair is a uh, is a is a former uh, Deloitte Chiefs Operation Officer. So so a really good name there. And uh, they're going to be uh, taking uh, a company called Lumira DX public and uh and you know, through a five billion dollar spac deal and uh you know lamera dx uh among other things has uh has a high sensitivity uh 
you know, speedy COVID-19 test out there that's uh, been used by the National Health Service in the UK. It's got an EUA here in the US. So, uh, you know, they, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like this uh, this uh, cool diagnostics company that's now going to be uh, going public through a SPAC deal. And, you know, ex- I think we'll be expecting to see more of these as well because I mean, we've got some really big names in MedTech who've uh, started SPACs. I mean, including like former Medtronic CEO Omar Ishrak. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, the former, uh, you know, CEO of Verb Surgical and Volcano uh, Corp., uh, you know, Scott, uh, Scott Hunnikins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's taken one. Former iRhythm CEO, uh, Karim Cardi has one. So, uh, so yeah, I, this is not, I, I, this will not be the last SPAC deal that we're going to be, uh, you know, talking about. And, and then, of course, like one already that happened, you know, just, just in recent months that's been getting a lot of buzz on mass devices, the, you know, SPAC that took uh, Butterfly Network, uh, you know, public. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, very, very interesting times. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if these, uh, these SPAC deals uh, continue. Is this just this kind of like a fad right now that uh, is going to burn out eventually, or is this going to be kind of a, a, an alt- a way to uh, do an IPO for you know a, a cool company without going through all the headaches that go with a with a former a formal a former a formal IPO? So it'll depend upon how well this 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 crop of uh, SPAC companies or SPAC acquired companies perform. Uh, you know, I think everything comes and goes, pendulums swing back and forth. But uh, from people I talk to, it doesn't seem to be just a, a lot of uh, blind money throwing dollars at deals. Uh, it seems to be some thought behind it. So hopefully it'll be a, a new permanent infrastructure and a way for companies to uh, to get on the public market and to uh, to get acquired. So great job, Chris Newmarker. As always, important stuff on Mass Device. We certainly encourage yeah. people to uh, to check out Mass Device each and every day. And you had a kind of a Mass Device, uh, well, all of our, our life sciences pages had a bit of a, a milestone recently, right? Yeah, you know, last month we uh, all of our uh, all of our life sciences sites uh, for the first time crossed one million page views. Woohoo! That's great. So that's drug dis- drug delivery, drug discovery, mass drug- device, MDO, medical tubing extrusion, medical tubing and extrusions. So, yep, yep, it's pretty it's pretty cool. I I I, I hopefully we're you know we're doing this. I, I really think we are actually like just you know providing some you know really good news for people like every day, like really helping keeping people informed. So I think it's. Just a testament to the fact that we're uh, we're covering the heck out of, out of the life sciences space, and you know, if you if you want to stay informed, just you know, keep track of our website, subscribe to our newsletters. You know, we like alliterations here at WTWH, right, Chris? So I think I'm going to start calling you the the medtech media mogul. Does that work for you? Wow, I'm a mogul. You want to be a mogul? You want to be a mogul? I mean, you know, I kind of like to work with a t-shirt on. I don't know if I'm a mogul. I mean, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All, right. All right. Maybe maybe you're not mogul material. Just yet. You, need, you need to start smoking cigars, I suppose, and maybe crushing the working man. And that doesn't seem to be your style. Yeah, yeah right, I'm not like things. really. I'm not. I don't have any feeling. I mean, I did get vaccinated a week ago. But I still don't have any feel. great feelings of power. So, yeah, I don't have. <laughs> I don't feel like I need to, anything that I need to crush right now. So that's good. But, you know, I do. Saving the world sounds good though i'm gonna keep on working on we're gonna keep on working on saving the world how's that sound sounds good to me chris newmarker well derek herrera welcome to the podcast thanks tom thanks for having me it's it's fun to finally connect with folks that you see out there in the in on linkedin and see out there many posts and i've heard your 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 story before and it's an amazing story that i want to get into and normally i open up these interviews with the question as to how you get into med tech but we're actually going to delay that part because it's really connected to where your life started why did you decide to to join the marine corps when you did 
I joined the Marine Corps in 2006 after I graduated from the Naval Academy and mainly because it was a family business. So uh, uh, <laughs> I've been around it my whole life. My grandfathers were both in the Air Force for their careers. And my father was in the Air Force for a career. So it was always in that environment and, and gravitated towards it. And it was one of, something I wanted to do and wanted to, to serve the country in that regard. So I went to the Naval Academy and when I graduated, became a Marine officer. Did you go to the Naval Academy with the intention of spending your career in the armed forces or did you have your eyes on engineering or some sort of longer career post, uh, post-service? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to pursue yeah. at that time. So I just knew it was a, a great institution, a great education, a calling that I was passionate about at that time. And the minimum requirement is five years of service when you graduate. So didn't know if it was going to be five or, or 20 or 30 or however many. And when I graduated, I was just excited to to take the next steps and, and didn't really think long-term, was just trying to enjoy the moment that I had, which, you know, and facing the, the initial challenges that were directly in front of me, which was, you know, becoming an infantry officer and deploying right away to, to, to overseas. And then in 2010, you became a special operations officer. And I'm just looking at your, your LinkedIn profile. I'm not sure if I'm... A- it's what it says there, so I hope I'm describing it right. But let me know if I'm if I'm getting the transition wrong. But what what happened in uh, in 2010? Yeah, so I had served as an infantry officer initially. So I deployed twice, uh, once to Iraq and then once to other countries in the mm-hmm. Middle East. And during that time, I had such a great experience leading men and women in that endeavor that when I came back and started to present myself with this situation coming up on the five year mark, where I decided, hey. Do I want to leave the military? Or do I want to stay in? I decided I wanted to continue to serve. And then if I did, that I wanted to do it with the most talented people and the most capable and competent doing, you know, the most complex and challenging missions in the, the Marine Corps. And so that for me and what I found there was that that was as part of the special operations community within the Marine Corps, which uh, we now call Marine Raiders. And so I went through the transition process. Uh, there's a selection process that you have to pass to be selected. And then you have to go through training about a year of training before you can become unofficially a member of the unit. And so I went through that training in 2011 and then joined a unit here in California and transferred to California in 2011. And did you serve overseas in the special forces? I did. Yeah. So I was in charge of a small unit of about 20 Marines and sailors and then trained for about a year and deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. So Derek, what was the, talk a little bit about your experience in the military as much as you can and what ultimately happened to, to lead you to transition into medtech? I uh, deployed in 2012 as a Marine Raider team commander and was in charge of about 20 Marines and sailors there. And we went to conduct a mission called Village Stability Operations, mm-hmm. which basically was our team embedded in a small rural village in Afghanistan, where we were trying to help establish security, revive economic development, and link political governance for that region with the hopes that they would become sustainable and be able to resist enemy or, or Taliban influence at that time. And so we got deployed to the Helmand province, which you know where we were was a very rural, impoverished area, and found ourselves in, in frequent you know, firefights and engagements with the enemy. And so we were working really to establish security in that regard. And, and in doing so on, on the morning of June 14th, 2012, I'd led a patrol to uh, a small building where we occupied that building. And, and shortly after sunrise on that patrol, found myself injured in the opening moments of a firefight. And so I was on the rooftop with two other Marines. And during, you know, a brief lull in the fighting, we'd been engaged by an enemy off to our flanks and, and the bullet that I got shot with went in my shoulder and lodged in between my spine and my spinal cord mm. in between my T6 and T7 vertebrae. So I was instantly paralyzed from the chest down. And fortunately, due to the heroism and bravery and sacrifice and selflessness of the team members on that patrol in a 
incredibly chaotic and challenging situation. I'm alive today. And so they stabilized me and the other Marine who had also been shot and was in critical condition as well, stabilized us, repelled the enemy assault, called in for a medevac helicopter and got us out of that uh, situation alive and, and continue to stay there and, and fight. And so that was the singular incident, which was, you know, change the trajectory of my career altogether. And at that point I was, you know, incredibly fulfilled, incredibly passionate about the work I was doing. I, I didn't think there would be a better job ever because I was, you know, working with people that, you know, I trusted and respected performing missions that were of the utmost importance to, to our team, to our units, to our, our country. But in an instant that all changed. Right. And so I'm now still am paralyzed from the chest down and use a wheelchair. And that's what sparked the, the transition and the journey for me to attend to the med tech industry. What was the time like immediately after your injury when you were recovering and not quite sure what your, your next path was there? I imagine as anyone who's forced to leave something that they love, there's a lot of grief and loss and uh, frustration. What was that process and transition like? And how did you kind of find your way to the other side? Uh, there was a lot of ups and downs. So yeah. a lot of times when I talk about it, I try to make it very clear that this is not like, I talk about it like it's black and white. Yeah, it absolutely was not black and white. Right. So over time, though, there was kind of an up and down period, an emotional roller coaster ride. Initially, there was euphoria, right, just because I was still alive and I'd survived this engagement. And, you know, I didn't know what my prognosis was or what the recovery would be or my outlook would be. You know, there was still a chance that, hey, I might walk again or mm -hmm. do these sorts of things and, and all of that. Over time, when my recovery stagnated and I wasn't making progress and things had stabilized, the reality set in that, that this was my new life and this was you know the, a new limitation physically that I would have to deal with. And so moving forward and, and embracing that, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs in, in dealing with that. And, and most importantly, those types of physical things weren't nearly as challenging to me as the psychological and the emotional aspect of moving forward, which was, hey, this is something I dedicated my life to. I'd pursued, I'd worked for a decade in the military to get to the unit that I was in and to work there and to be, have the opportunity to operate in that environment and to lead men and women in that type of setting. And now I would never be able to do that again. Right. And so, so it took a little while to get around, to get my head around exactly what that meant and how to deal with it all the while dealing with the, you know, the emotional side of things with, you know, how did this affect my family? How does this affect my future? My wife at, at the time, you know, how are we going to move forward together? And, and it took a little while, but a few of the things that I had done to help kind of expedite that recovery, I was very fortunate was kind of embracing a stoic philosophy um, mm -hmm. and understanding that, you know, no amount of stress or, or worry or concern is going to change things. There are things that, that happened. I can't change certain things. So what can I change? What can I focus on? How can I reinvest my energy to, to move forward and to, to do something else meaningful and find my next mission and my next purpose? And that was one thing. And then the other thing, which also was uh, very clear and, and not everybody has this ability, but I was very fortunate, you know, in some respects to have this was that I had seen just how much opportunity I have. And a lot of the people that I had worked with, you know, there were more than a handful that they were killed in action in Afghanistan and didn't come home. And so mm -hmm. once I understood that and thought about that, it, it made it real easy to quit feeling sorry for yourself. Right. Cause every one of those guys that was killed and doesn't have that opportunity, I thought about that and I think about it every day and I'm like, Hey, any one of those guys would be happy to be in my situation, would be happy to have the life that I have and they don't have it. And so should I feel sorry for myself? Should I squander the opportunities that I do have or sure. 
be grateful for what I can do and how I can move forward and, and what I could accomplish. And that's something I choose to try to do every day is to understand and embrace that and to pursue that with all of the work that I'm doing now. Oh, it's, I mean, it's such a important philosophy and approach and, and the correct one. I mean, and to your point about it being black and white, I'm sure that that's some, that would be hard to maintain. I think the, the, the gratitude of, well, I, you know, this could be worse because then you run against, run up against your own personal challenges and, while yes, you're better off than some, there are others who have opportunities that you didn't anymore in terms of use of your body. So I imagine it wasn't uh, it wasn't just a, a switch that you flip. But how do you then settle on what was your, I'm looking again at your background, you're the first kind of connection I see to MedTech was the work with uh, Rewalk Robotics as a brand ambassador. Was this sort of serendipitous, your connection to MedTech, or did you... In your experience at a military hospital and finding a way, did you see, detect some affinity toward the technology that was being used to help you? And did you kind of see that as if I'm going to find a path to recovery that I want to create more of these devices that that may help someone down the line if they're run into a a similar unfortunate fate? That's exactly what happened. So I got injured in 2012. One thing you learn, one thing we teach people to do and the things we screen for and select above all else, when we look for special operators, what we're looking for are critical thinkers and problem solvers, people who can be quick learners and can learn and consume vast amounts of information and become knowledgeable overnight. Right. And so when I first got injured, I began to consume everything that was happening with spinal cord injury and in a a personal manner, not because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but because I wanted to recover. And so I looked at every research paper that was available online for stem cells, exoskeleton technology, bee sting therapy, like everything. I looked at everything, right? Non-traditional, like everything, right? Because I was like, hey, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to recover, right? And, you know, short of going to Tijuana and getting, paying somebody $30,000 to stick my own stem cells back in my spine, you know, like I did everything. Like I did everything possible that, that I think could have been done. And so in the course of this, exoskeleton technology was new. It was innovative. It was coming out and I was in the VA hospital in Tampa and they had just gotten them. They'd gotten a few of these units there, not from Rewalk, but from another company called Exobionics. And they were still just trying to figure out how to use them. They weren't using them with patients. They weren't, you know, weren't doing anything with them because of other reasons. But I had transferred back to California to go back to work about six months after my injury and and then continued to to pursue this technology. And so I started to email Rewalk and you know, like the, and at the time I didn't understand this, but I just kept emailing, right. And emailing the website and it's, Hey, yeah, stop the email on us. Like it's not available for users. We'll put you on the list. And I'm like, now you don't understand. I need this and I need it now. This is important. And they're like, yeah, but like we told you, like you're a person, it's not FDA cleared. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, you can't do that. And what do you need? Like you're running clinical <laughs> studies. Like what, how do I get this thing? And they're like, finally, after bugging them enough, they're like, okay, let's talk. Let's just talk. Just, they're like, just talk to this poor guy. Tell just go say something like they sent it to one of their sales guys or whatever. And so I met with them and they're like, well, yeah, we're on a clinical study and whatever, but you know, you need a physical therapist and all that. I'm like, done. I have a physical therapist in my office. Like I got to, I work in an office with a physical therapy clinic, like what paperwork let's do this. And so, so anyway, so over time we broke down that barrier and I received a device actually for clinical use 
before it was approved by the FDA as part of an ongoing, you know, ongoing clinical research, which was awesome. And then when we obtained FDA clearance in 2014, I was the first person to own a personal exoskeleton. Oh, wow. After they had, so I was the first person in America to own that, which, which was awesome. And the device itself, I had really high hopes, right? I was like, oh man, I'm going to be running around in this thing. It's going to be awesome. I'm never going to use a wheelchair again. That wasn't real, but mm-hmm. it still was incredibly impactful for me physically and, and therapeutically and psychologically because it's the only way I could stand and walk. And then I'd set a goal to begin using that device more and more. And, and one of the goals I'd set was to use it at my retirement ceremony. When I left the military, I had a goal that I wanted to leave on my own two feet and mm-hmm. was able to accomplish that goal, which, you know, that was a singular instance that kind of inspired me and really altered the trajectory of my life because I'd met, I'd also met, I'd gone to Israel and met with the inventor of that device and the company leadership and got to know them very intimately. And the inventor of that device is a quadriplegic. He was a guy who was an engineer. He got injured. He started building stuff in his garage. And, you know, 10 years later, there's this advanced robotic exoskeleton that's on the market. That's the first robotic exoskeleton for personal use. And when I met that person, that man, Mitt Gopher, Dr. Ahmed Gopher, it made it very relatable and tangible, right? And it's just, it's when people talk about access to networks and things that make you understand that you actually have more power and more control over situations or, or things become more tangible to you, right? If you grow up in a small town and no one's ever gone to Harvard and you're like, oh, there's no chance I'm going to get into Harvard, right? But then when your buddy who's, you know, the center of the football team, he got into Harvard and you're like, oh, you know, well, if Billy got into Harvard, why can't I, right? You know, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, yeah. And so as that was occurring, I was also going back to graduate school at UCLA part-time doing my MBA as part of the executive MBA program and, and realized that this was what I wanted to do and what I needed to do and that, that I could actually carve out a niche where I could leverage my unique insight into the patient conditions and the research that I conducted with the market landscape and the environment to identify unmet needs that could be solved by technology and then build a business to address those. And that's entrepreneurship, right? Everybody knows that as entrepreneurship. I didn't quite understand that at the time, but that was how, that was the foundation for how I became a medical device entrepreneur. Do you still use an exoskeleton today? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I have it in the garage. I use it therapeutically once or twice a week usually. And it's awesome. It's, you know, it's the only way someone who's totally paralyzed can stand and walk. And there's a lot of physical benefits to that, obviously, that are well-researched and, and psychological benefits also. Sure. No, I bet. So, that's, I mean, that, that, that's an amazing story. And, and you do bring an important perspective on a few fronts. I mean, just in, obviously your military service and, and the, the, the way you were injured. I mean, I think that's an important story, but also your the process you went through to to engage with the first company and to get them to speak to you that kind of speaks to and I don't want to assign it to this com- country company specifically, but there, there's a lot of people don't understand how the med tech industry works, how to get engaged into. Sometimes you just need to be that sort of proponent and that you need to be aggressive. And I think getting your uh, getting attention. And I think that leads to where we're talking about inequity of med tech, of to med tech technology a lot. And I think that's part of it. So the, the fact that you bring this experience, this discipline, obviously, and this sensitivity to that issue, I think those are three really three important qualities to, to running a company because you're ultimately, everyone who starts these companies and creates these technologies, for the most part, are doing it to benefit others. I mean, the paycheck has to come along with it, but there is a desire to, to make someone else's lives life better. So how did you take that intention and that hope and those qualities that you have and actually translated into an actual experience in medtech. 
Yeah. You know me too well. So uh, what you basically said was, you know, like a uh, healthy disrespect for authority, not taking no for an answer. <laughs> My wife would be laughing right now if she heard that, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, yeah, it, and I'd always kind of had that streak. I'd always been not a rule breaker, but like I'd always question authority, you know, and like people don't understand like, oh, you're in the military. That means you, you like authority and you like rules and you like following orders. And it's like, well, not the case, not always the yeah. case. And like solving problems, right. And, you know, control and autonomy and everything else. And so, and so the other part of that too, the second part to your question about how you, you lay the foundation, like you also have to have a lack of risk aversion, right? Like you have to be willing to take serious risk and just go for it. Right. And so at that time I was in business school part-time, I didn't have any startup experience. I took another job with uh, a company at the time called Neural Analytics, which is now called Nova Signal, another UCLA startup, just to get experience and learn. So I started doing some business development work for them. Did that for six months as I was laying the foundation, you know, trying to build my business plan, build the slides, build the pitch deck, everything for uh, Spinal Singularity. And then when I graduated, just went for it, just launched it full time and just started working every day to build it. I didn't know what to do or how to do it, but just kind of figure it out. And and fortunately with the network within the medtech industry, because of what you said, right? Because people actually care and because your intent is pure and, and your purpose and your motivations are, are for bettering people's lives. Sure. It's very collaborative, right? Like a lot of people want to help. And I was very fortunate to meet people at events that were like, Hey, you know, we know you don't know what you're doing, but you, you'll probably figure it out. So like, how can I help? How can I help you? Like, maybe you need connections, to engineers, you need connection to these resources. You need connection to investors, like, and that's how we kind of got started. And so it was a very slow start, but the ecosystem was very, very supportive and very helpful for us. And we we're very fortunate to take advantage of incubators, accelerator programs, all of those early stage investment opportunities, mm-hmm. raised a little bit of money and then continue to grow and, and gain momentum and have built, you know, built on that success initially over the past, past few years. Well, I just to back up a sec, how did you get that first gig in business development at neural, neural analytics now nova signal uh what was did how did you identify that as an opportunity and how did they identify you as someone who could do business development for them i pulled the wool over their eyes somehow <laughs> it, no it was actually a lot of its proximity yeah. so they were a ucla startup they had just raised their first seed round at that time they had a lot of technical expertise they didn't really have any commercial hires per se i don't think yeah i don't think they had any real like commercial folks. And, and I had no commercial experience, but I did have experience in the military. And at that time, what they were targeting was uh, concussion and traumatic brain injury. And so my business development, the pitch that I had for them was I said, Hey, let me come work for you for a couple, you know, part-time for a little bit. And let me try to build these relationships and help you refine the product market fit for what could be one of your biggest customers, the DOD. Um, Perfect. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Right. And so I did that for a few months and, and helped out and learned a ton. And I was also cheap. Right. So I was on a startup budget because I didn't really care about the money. Right. Like I was just like, hey, like, I just want to learn. I just want to be part of this network. I want to be part of a team. You guys are successful. You were you didn't have a company last year and this year you do and you raise a three million dollar seed round. So I want to do that. So I just need to be in this environment around you building the network, learning, soaking as much as I can. And and I was fortunate to have that experience, but I think the the short answer is proximity. Yeah, and and your will, like you said, your willingness to just say, "I'll, I'm here, I can do it, and I'll figure it out." And their ability to trust you that you'll figure it out and and learn. That's I think no matter anyone's situation, I think that we all have an ability to kind of 
convince others that we will yeah. we'll take the opportunity, we'll make it work. Uh, so that's definitely a great lesson. So then switching over to the spinal singularity, which you founded in July of 2015, what was the origin of the, of the technology? How, how did that come together? Yeah. So we were technology agnostic with spinal singularity. It was all condition focused, right? And so okay. we were trying to solve one problem. And, and so what happened was that while I was at business school, so after I got injured, I thought, you know, I had this lesson. One of the lessons I learned was that after I'd been paralyzed, I thought, you know, Hey, that sucks. Like I'm not going to be able to walk again. Right. And it, it does a little bit, but I can actually get around pretty good in a wheelchair, right? Like I've gone to China, I've gone to Africa, I've gone to the middle East. I've gone to Europe, I've gone all over the world in a wheelchair. Right. And it's been fine, but I struggled day to day with bladder management. Mm-hmm. And that was something that like, you think about how often that affects you. Right. And it's, Hey, you, you go to the bathroom, five, 10 times a day, a lot. And if the process of doing that now is so cumbersome, so terrible, so strife with, you know, all these problems and issues associated with that and complications, that is a huge detractor and impact on your quality of life. And so I had things like infections, false passage and urethral trauma and and all these things that are associated with catheterization. And the reason why is because the best thing that medicine had to offer at that time was intermittent self-catheterization. And what that requires is, that every time you want to go to the bathroom, you take out a small plastic catheter, you stick it in your urethra all the way up into the bladder and drain your bladder, and then you throw it away. Right. And so I was 28 years old when this happened. You do this on average, whatever, two, 3000 times a year. And when I find myself in the urologist's office and I ask him, I say, Hey doc, there's gotta be a better way than this. Right. And he's no, like, this is pretty good. You know, <laughs> all, all of these are good. Right. And I'm like, what planet are you on, man? Like, <laughs> this is not good. No. Like, easy for you to say, right? But I'm the one doing this, right? And so that's that was the moment, right, where I found myself on the table asking a urologist this as I was having these types of complications in Southern California in 2013. And I'm like, I just became obsessed with solving the problem, right? Like, there has to be a better way. Somebody needs to figure this out. Doesn't seem like anybody else is doing it. And so I spent the next few years just researching everything that was out there researching the business case, the landscape, trying to identify the real product market fit before we ever spent a, a dime to to do any R&D or R&D development. Because before we invested in technology development, wanted to make sure that we had the right product market fit and the right market opportunity to attract the investment necessary to address this issue. And then I'll, I'll also marrying that up, obviously, with the patient needs and the patient considerations as well. So, so we went through the process of, of mapping that out in the entire customer discovery process. Wow. So I'm curious, do you identify first as a patient or a customer or as a executive problem solver? I think it's probably equal to both. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, when I go to work, right, I'm, I'm not just a user, right? I'm, I'm working all day. And so I, I guess actually probably a majority of my time, I would be the problem solver, right? Yeah. Uh, the guy who tries to get stuff done. So, I mean, it's such a unique perspective though, to your point that, you know, the, yeah, the doctor saying, well, it's, you know, works, it's good enough, you know, and you're yeah. obviously you have a more important perspective. And, and I don't think that's, I think there are many executives out there who lead med tech companies who want to get that perspective and, and you have that, that built in already. So, yeah. And that's hard. Cause like, you know, I didn't understand this, but as, as like now having spent a little bit in industry, right. And, and not to say anything negative about doctors, but they're trained to follow procedures, right? Like they, follow rule. Like they have well-established, well-researched methodologies for why they do every single thing that they do. And that's a good thing, right? but it's not innovative, right? That doesn't lend itself to innovation all the time. So it takes very special doctors who can get that. So like when you ask questions like that to doctors, you know, like they may not understand the art of what's possible, 
right? Because they've been ingrained in science and research and what's been done, not innovation. And so that's not their fault. And nor do we want them to be wholly innovative all the time, right? Because that would be terrible. But, but yeah, it just goes back to what you're saying. And so as someone in a company, a med tech company that may not have access to that or may not understand that, right? That's what I thought was my unique calling in life is like, hey, of all the things I can do, is there only, is there something that only I can do? Right. Right. And that was it. And I said, hey, I have this experience. I have this firsthand knowledge, which allows me to rapidly cycle and rapidly iterate and build products that will address these unmet needs. And this insight can be leveraged to build a profitable, scalable company. And that was what I set out to, to do. Yeah, and I, this will probably be the last one of my questions like this, but that the person that was able to take that idea or belief that something had to happen and to turn into something, was that Derek or was that, and I'm sorry, I don't know what rank you achieved in the Marines. Was that the Marine you who did captain? Was that the Marine you or was it a, a healthy mixture of both? I think it's foundational. Yeah. I don't know if I could separate the two. I, I obviously... I'm a different person today than I was then, but the foundational underpinnings of, of everything I did there are applicable. I still use them today, right? So like even the military has a system for risk management and operational risk management. And so every time before we'd go on a mission, we'd fill out these operational risk matrices and things that we would do to mitigate and manage risk. Mm-hmm. And the place we got that from, shockingly, is the medical industry, oh, really? right? the medical device industry. So like <laughs> when we look at risk assessment codes, everything else, like when I got to the industry, I was like, this is very familiar. Right? Like <laughs> I get this, you know, like I had no idea. I know this, but obviously, and it, it kind of makes sense. Cause like, Hey, we're going out on missions where we're dealing with life and death situations and life and death conditions. So what better place to draw our risk management and our risk assessment principles from than the medical device industry where these devices are life-threatening or life-sustaining or excuse me, life-sustaining mm-hmm. and, and risk is assessed and, you know, unique problems and innovative situations and things like that. And so that plus like for my undergraduate degree, right, I did systems engineering. So I had a little bit of technical understanding yeah. and, and then the most important thing I think I learned, well, one of the most important things I think I learned in the military was just operational planning and the ability to communicate, right. And to assess the environment, create plans, and then lead, right. And to drive action to accomplish objectives. And so, so I'm definitely not, you know, captain Herrera today. Right. But the same stuff that I did then is very similar to the stuff I do now. It's just a different environment. It's just fundamental skills that it's the intangibles, right. That are important. Gotcha. So what was the solution that uh, you came up with at, at Spinal Singularity? How did you improve your life? I, I presume you're using what the solution and others as well, I'm sure. Yeah. So the device at the time, we called it the connected catheter and the device was designed to be the first fully internal, mostly controlled system for bladder management for men who've lost control of their bladders with urinary retention. So, so instead of using one or excuse me, instead of using a device every single time that you go to the bathroom mm-hmm. to empty your bladder, we created one device that can stay in the body for an extended period of time. That's fully internal to the body and can be wirelessly controlled. So you can just push a button on a remote controller to empty your bladder. Wow. And then when you're done emptying it, you push a button again, it'll close the, the valve in the device and let your bladder fill back up. And so, and so it enables more natural filling and emptying, more normal controlled voiding, even though you're not, we're not doing anything therapeutic and, you know, changing physiology and that like all of a sudden, you know, we're not retraining, you know, the body to be able to control avoiding, but we're actually just using uh, basic mechanical engineering, right, to to enable 
a more natural voiding cycle. And that's how it works. And that's what we do. And it's been well-received thus far. We're still in, in ongoing clinical studies now uh, and hoping to get on the market early next year. You know, it's been a labor of love and we've learned a ton, uh, obviously, because when we started, we, we didn't have technology, right? It was a napkin sketch. Like I literally, I still didn't know computer-aided design, right? So I was still drawing with a pencil and graph paper <laughs> and taking it to injection molding companies and, and everything else. And they'd kind of laugh and they'd be like, oh, you're old school. And I'm like, yeah, what, you guys can't, you, yeah, you guys can't do, work off this. Like, oh, no, yeah, we get it. <laughs> and we have this stare off. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, well, okay, all right we'll make a 3d model for you in SolidWorks and whatever. So, um, so did that, that idea come, did you come up with that internally or did you t talk with others? A little bit of both. Yeah. So I'd redone a thorough review of the landscape, yep. a thorough IP review for everything else that had been out there, that had been tried, that had been patented, that had failed to be patented. And the initial idea was, Hey, what are the requirements, right? Let's define the requirements. And the requirements are like fully internal to the body. I don't want anything hanging out of the body extended use Right. So that, you know, we're not doing inserting these catheters every 10 times a day. Right. Mm -hmm. And wireless control, right? Like I want to be able to push a button on a remote or my phone at that time, I thought on the phone, but we've abandoned the phone, push a button on a remote, empty the bladder. Right. So that was it. Push button, empty bladder. And so we had that kind of initial framework and just continued to develop it further and further as we went along. And we incorporated some off patent technology from another company because there was the basic valve idea had been around, right? We didn't invent that. We just reverse engineered that because that's been expired, but we did invent and come, you know, we've developed additional intellectual property along the way that's been patented. So we've got multiple patents now that are awarded in the US and abroad for different aspects of of the device and the anchoring mechanisms and all these sorts of things that enable us to accomplish this. And so it's taken us a little while, but but we looked at best practices across industry, integrated what we could and you know, borrowed from off patent technology and then developed our own technology on top of that to to get to where we are. And so engaging that, I am not the guy who developed it all. It was a team effort, mm -hmm. 100%. We had uh, amazing employees at the time. We had also leveraged some brilliant, you know, product design, product development companies as well for outsourcing some of the industrial design. And over time, you know, we've gotten to where we are today. Let's, let's talk about what's next with Spinal Singular. You're still involved, but you're transitioning out. You have a CEO now. Talk a bit about that that process, because I think for your case, maybe more than other entrepreneurs, I mean, this is really a literally a labor of love and a labor, a labor of life for you. I mean, this is something you want to happen for you and others who are in your condition. What is it like to hand that off to, uh, well, tell us where you're at with that regard and what does that feel like handing this off to someone else? Yeah. So with Spinal Singularity, we actually rebranded. Now we're now Eurodev Medical and we did that recently after we'd hired uh, a new CEO. And so we had a CEO, I'd hired a CEO very early on as well, because I had no experience in the industry uh, who was phenomenal and did amazing work for us at the stage of the company that we were at. We parted ways a, a while back, right before the pandemic, and you know, kind of went into a survival mode. We've survived the pandemic, and now you know are ramping back up and moving forward. And as part of that, have engaged new leadership, right, and, and bringing in new people who can help take the company to the next phase. And so, from day one, as a founder, you should be considering or thinking about a succession planning, and at what stage you need to get out of the way, right? And and so. Nobody knows for sure how that all works and every situation is different. But for me, very early on, I knew and identified, hey, I'm lacking in experience in the industry. I'm lacking in a network in the industry. So I need to hire people that can help me make this real, right? And do I give up a little bit of control? Yes. Do I give up a little bit of, you know, 
equity or fun financial gain. Yeah. But, but so what, you know, if this is what's needed for the company and for the product to get to market and, and my true goal is to get something on the market to help people, then, you know, you have to make sacrifices and, and you, you know, always aware that you don't want to be the guy with hundred percent of nothing. Right. So <laughs> that's right. the name of the game. And it's just a matter of negotiating it and, and navigating it appropriately. And so with this latest, transition, right? With our new leadership, we brought in, we brought in somebody with a lot of experience in, in marketing, in urology and specifically medical devices for urology. And he's been awesome and has been you know helping us move forward. It's been great to, to see the company grow and, and to go to the next stages. And so had a lot of changes and a lot of growing up and, you know, over the past few months. So we've hired a new CEO, we've rebranded, we've moved the company headquarters to Minnesota because of, you know, okay. obvious benefits to recruiting and long-term company strategy. And so there's been a lot of transition with the company, but it's all part of the greater goal, which is to build a sustainable company that can get this this product out there to the millions of, of men who need it. And so we've been working through all of those things and and letting go. Sometimes it's hard, but but at the same time, if it's done well and thoughtfully and, you know, navigated properly with aligned incentives amongst all parties, then I think it's, you know, it's not only necessary, but it's essential because it, if not at a certain stage, right. We like to glorify this, not so much in the medical device industry, but in the greater tech industry, right. We like to glorify mm-hmm. the founder who takes the company public and who, you know, gets to whatever billion dollars of run rate. Right. And that's right. That is not the norm. Right. Like, and so for me to think that I'm going to be like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or whatever else, right. Yeah. Absolutely not the case. Right. Like I know my role. I was going to say not a lot of Zuckerbergs in med tech. No, no. And there's, I mean, there's a handful of people who like, you know, some of my mentors, you know, guys like Mike Minogue, right. Who have been incredibly successful in Abiomed and, and to the point now where they have, I think, I forget the exact number, but hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, right? But, yep. but I'm not him. I'm not Mike, right? And that's not my goal. And and so, you know, knowing your role and knowing where and, and how to fulfill that is is important. And then knowing when to get out of the way, right? Because at a certain point, if I don't know that and I'm not self-aware, I'm going to artificially limit the potential growth of the company and the potential impact that our product will have in the yep. marketplace. And so I need to be able to step away. I need the company to be able to work well without me. And I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, right? Like we've hired a CEO, but I'm still involved day to day. I'm still the CTO of the company. Mm-hmm. I still go to work every day, right? And I still do this. This is my job, but it's healthy and essential for me to figure out how to make this company run without me. Now let's just wrap up and, and talk about your, your latest project, Habit Camera, which looks like you started a year ago. You're still at Spinal Singularity as CTO, but you're creating another company as well. How are you, how are you balancing that? Well, first, let's uh, t- tell us about Habit Camera, and then we'll get into the balance after that. For sure. Yeah. So the Habit Camera, I'm really excited to talk about. It's a, a lot different than my previous experience. It is a consumer health product. It's incredibly simple. It's been a lot of fun. I leverage technology that's been developed by the VA. So I licensed the patents from the VA to develop this product. And essentially, it is the first digital tool for skin inspection that enables telehealth. And so it replaces what patients currently get, which is a flexible mirror and enables them to view their skin using a smartphone application or or tablet application in real time and high definition where they can save images or videos and send those to clinicians or caregivers to support those telehealth initiatives. And so very simple and low cost and very effective and filling a really critical unmet need because many of you know about diabetic foot ulcers, pressure sores, wound care. It's massive, massive industry because these wounds are so hard to treat and they're potentially deadly. And so the, one of the best methods is, is to prevent them or to intervene early when those wounds aren't 
deadly or life-threatening or causing amputations mm. or all these sorts of, of conditions and side effects associated with that. And so, so I've been working on it as a, a hobby and a side project over the past year or so. Because it's so simple, we'll be shipping product in Q3 of this year, right? And, and we're able to do that with you know, minimal investment, minimal time involved and everything else. And just excited to, to get the product out there where it can help people. And, and also it was a lot of fun too, because I'm learning, like I said, because it's a consumer product, I'm learning a whole different side of the business with mm-hmm. sales, marketing, you know, advertising, all the aspects of that too. So how did you come to know it? Cause you didn't develop it from your own experience or looking Correct. for a solution for this. Someone came to you. So how did that, how'd you come to know about it? Yeah. So it's just through the networking, you know, that I've done and, and just being around right in the industry and going to conferences and everything else. I met at a, a conference, one of the key inventors of this device, a guy named Dr. Goldish, and he's mm-hmm. a researcher at the Minneapolis VA. And he said, Hey, Derek, I went up and talked to him after his presentation, just to introduce myself. And cause he's very you know well-known in the rehabilitation space. And I said, Hey, like I want to introduce myself. He said, Hey, I have this cell. I have this innovation and engineering cell. Can you come to the VA and visit? I want to show you all these things that we're developing. And, and so the next time I was in Minnesota, I just stopped by and, and checked him out and spent a little bit of time there. And he showed me probably 10 different things that they were developing. And this was the one that I thought was the easiest to commercialize with the least amount of investment possible, fulfilling mm-hmm. a very important need. And so the more I kind of dug into it, decided to try to resource it and, and invest a little bit of time to, to support it. But, but it's not a full-time job. It's been a hobby you know, until now. And, and we've been able to get there as a, you know, a, a small family business. And so it's been fun and hopefully it'll have an outsized impact based on the, the reception that we're, we're achieving now in the commercial environment. And is the timing of the start coincidental? It's April, 2020. Obviously we just locked down and I'm sure a lot of the people you spoke of earlier, sorry to say, I'm sure a lot of them suffered because they weren't able to go see their physician. They weren't able to, their physician wasn't able to see their wounds. And, and yeah. I'm sure a lot of things slipped through the crack. So ironically, if it, if it was not intended, it was very much needed over the past year. Yeah. And I had met them probably about a year prior to that. So I was just researching, learning more, just staying in contact with them up until that yeah. point. And then during COVID, you know, when we were locked down, you know, needed another hobby. Right. And so I had extra time on my hands, you know, and, and what better thing to do than something you're passionate about, right? And it's not, you know, and it's fun. It's not work, right? This was fun. And so it's been a lot of fun to develop this product. And, and to answer your question directly, yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of people that have had issues and we're hoping to take advantage of some of those market conditions that are becoming more favorable for telehealth and these initiatives. So things like the fact that podiatrists now can be reimbursed for telehealth where previously they weren't. You know, we talked with another clinician who said that, hey, I started just asking my patients to snap a picture of their feet once a week and send it in. And that physician said, Hey, because of this, I think we've saved 12 lower extremity amputations, right? These things like I had no wow. idea how impactful this could be, but as I've researched it more and more, you know, the research I just saw last night was that patients with diabetes, if they have a foot ulcer, their morbidity rate in five years is double those that don't. So wow. just that, that condition alone, right? If you have a diabetic foot ulcer, you are twice as likely to die in the next five years than if you don't, right? And so this is a huge issue, right? And then for the wheelchair users, like I have friends, right, that have dealt with this and sitting on, you know, sitting in a wheelchair all day, like you're highly susceptible to these things. I had a friend who had a surgery to repair it and that forced him, he had a flap surgery to repair this and, and that required him to be in a bed for nine months. Oh my gosh. Right, and that, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? Like yeah, yeah. you're a wheelchair user and you can't, like these things are incredibly expensive, incredibly costly and life-threatening, right? And so if we have a better, simple tool out there that we can, you know, get to people and, and sell for very cheap, like 
it's a no brainer for me and the reasons why we did it. Do you see, I mean, it's interesting that both of your products are, I don't want to call them low hanging fruit, but we, we spend all of our time talking about all these great technologies, renal renovation, all these kind of sci-fi Star Trek sort of stuff that's, and yet there's these products that can help people today or very soon and can get through clinical trials today and very soon and may not be huge money makers, but they'll definitely save lives and they'll definitely improve lives. Is there a missed opportunity there or an opportunity for someone like yourself I think to, so. to pursue a lot of those? That's that's my niche. So that's what, that's the niche that I've tried to carve out for myself yeah. over the past few years is class two devices or quick time to market or you know FDA exempt devices that still have an impact for a patient population that I understand well and know about. And so everything that I'm doing now, I'm also, you know, advising a few other startups as well. And and everything that I try to devote my time to are meeting that profile, right? I don't know surgeries. I don't know ID, you know, I don't know PMA products. And granted, those are very impactful and life-saving innovations and have huge market upsides and drive all of that. I don't know pharma. I don't know imaging. I don't know any of that stuff, right? So what I do know is, hey, if it's simple, easy to manufacture, easy to develop, you know, simple electrical or mechanical engineering with a big impact. That's where I want to play because there's not a lot of people doing it, right? And, and that's the unique position I think I can fill in the marketplace. Absolutely. And I'm a huge fan of renal innovation. So you're right. Not to <laughs> knock any of the big ideas because those are important too. But yeah. Final, final question. You mentioned Mike Minogue. He's, he's taking over as the chair of AdvaMed. I think one of his priorities is to strengthen the connection between veterans and med tech and get more of them in the industry. I thought that was a good idea before. I'm intrigued now by your, your suggestion that there's a lot of lessons learned in the military actually are come from med tech and there's the skills are transferable. Where do you see an effort like that going? And it sounds as if the industry really could benefit from integrating these two worlds more. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Mike is another visionary, right? Like he has some amazing ideas and, and phenomenal at executing them. And so one of the things, and, and one of the ways that I met him was because he's a veteran as well. He served in the army and is a West Point graduate. And he was one of my first mentors and advisors who I'd met at the MedTech conference, I think in 2015. And so he helped me establish a network and, and advise me at every step of the way with Spinal Singularity. And recently he'd also started a nonprofit called MedTech Vets just to support this initiative and try to get veterans, more veterans employed in the industry as, you know, an underrepresented minority. And so as a diversity initiative to, to try to help, you know, companies benefit from all of the unique knowledge and experience that that people like us have. And so recently I've joined the board and and, and took over as the chairman of the board uh, of directors for MedTech Vets. And, and I'm incredibly passionate about pursuing that, right? And, and I think we can make a very simple case for any employers in the industry or for the value that the, the veterans bring and the unique skill sets that, that they have. And so what we typically find is, you know, and this is why we have this nonprofit organization and what we provide is just general counseling and transition assistance for veterans who want to get into the industry to learn more and to build a job search strategy. And then we leverage our, our industry partners and the network that we have to try to help them network their way into the industry and get get employed at these companies. And so we can make a very simple case for the value that these folks bring to the table, which is they have a diverse set of skills and experiences, which is good because we don't always want, you know, uniformity of thought, right? And, you know, the same life experience. You don't want everybody to be the same in your company, mm-hmm. right? Because 
you miss out on things that you're not aware of, right. That you may not have been aware of. So that's a good thing that they all bring to the table. Uh, they obviously bring in the intangibles like work ethic, professionalism, dedication to duty, all of these sorts of principles that are very hard to screen for sometimes with new candidates, but you know, is common amongst every veteran that, that we, we help. And then the only, you know, challenge that we try to help educate employers about as well is that, you know, they have this different experience. They don't have the intimate working knowledge in every case for the jobs that they're fulfilling. And so they need a little bit of extra assistance and mentorship and guidance while they're learning the craft and learning the industry as they transition from five, 10, 25 years in the military to this new corporate environment. But once they do, you know, they can perform at or above the level of their peers and continue to generate returns long after they, they reach that mark and that milestone. And so, so yeah, so really excited about what we're doing. And we have a lot of great industry partners like Abiomed and, and so many other companies, Johnson and Johnson. We've been incredibly well supported by the industry and continue to help push that initiative to help veterans and to help companies as a part of a greater, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives within the industry. And that's something that, like you said, Mike personally, We'll be very interested in seeing from Advamed, you know, as the new chair of Advamed, and that the industry as a whole and the country, you know, all corporations across the country, you know, especially now, become more aware of veterans are an underrepresented talent pool. You know, that can help make companies stronger, and that's what we try to help uh, educate people on. That's terrific. Very well said. Well, thank you first for for stepping up and for serving our country and for serving in the armed forces. That's uh, it's an amazing uh, thing to do. So I appreciate that. And thank you also for being on the podcast. Oh, pleasure's all mine. No, thank you. And thank you for all the work that you continue to do with Device Talks. And yeah, it's been an honor. And uh, thanks for having me. All right, well, it was great to have Derek Herrera's story on the podcast. And Chris Newmark, you know what time it is. It's time to like talk, to share our social media. It you is. can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. You can find me uh, on Twitter as well at Newmarker. Always happy to you know chat with people. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm there. And you know, and also like I encourage you to subscribe to our, our newsletters and like, follow, come along with Mass Device on, on social media as well. And of course, you can find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And I am on Clubhouse. We will try to meet on Wednesday. So do check uh, those social media feeds. We'll announce when we're having one of our little Clubhouse hangouts, uh, either on our Device Talks group or the MedTech group. But uh, all right, that is a wrap. Please do not forget to subscribe. Please do not forget to share this podcast with uh, your friends, family, and colleagues. And uh, please remember to uh, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Wear your mask, get vaccinated.